Some cults are good, most cults are bad, but I'll tell you what really makes me sad. I can't decide which cult to join. If only there were a podcast out there to rank all the cults using some sort of bracket system like they do for basketball playoffs for college teams. It's madness, madness. am the keeper of the jewel of the masquerade which lies waiting safe inside me for you or eternity oh, so excited. then he sealed the amulet in wax put it in the casket assuring that metal detectors could not pick it up and then he went out in the middle of the night and buried it taking a witness with him the publisher pointed out that the witness had to be of unimpeachable character mm-hmm. and suggested the archbishop of canterbury y- yes but he was busy <laughs> So Williams enlisted respected academic author and then host of BBC Two University Challenge, Bamber Gascoigne. Bamber Gascoigne. One of the coolest names ever. And the kind of name you can only get if you're British aristocracy. Dude, it goes back ages. <laughs> right. There used to be a Y in it. Yeah. Later, Bamber wrote a book about this whole endeavor called The Search for the Golden Hair, which is out of print, and I would kill to fucking read yes. it. Anyway, this is how Bamber described the night. Okay. Williams produced a compass and measured 20 heel-to-toe shoe lengths. Yes, he did. At that point, he moved his compass low over the ground. Suddenly, its luminous needle swung south. Ley lines. Ley lines. Williams plunged a penknife into the earth and winkled out a magnet. He had buried it there with its own magnetic north pointing south some two oh and a half God. years previously. Jeez Louise, the dude. Hell? Williams now unpacked from the sack a trowel and a black plastic bin liner, which he spread out on the grass to one side. With his knife, he cut out a neat rectangle of turf about the size of the mouth of a generous letterbox. A generous letterbox. <laughs> he lifted off the piece of turf, boxes. unbroken, and placed it with reverence. Was it tough turf? No. <laughs> it was. It was English turf. <laughs> He He lifted up this piece of turf unbroken and placed it with reverence near one edge of the bin liner. And then he took up the trowel and began picking away at his cavity with the caution and delicacy of a good dentist. (laughs) I wanted to pick at my cavity. (laughs) At last, this is still Bamber Gascoigne talking. At last, Williams measured the depth of the hole against his forearm Mm -hmm. and declared himself satisfied. The earth and bricks went back into the hole as neatly as they had come out, leaving only a small residue to be carried away in the bin liner. Mm -hmm. The rectangle of turf was placed on top of the incision and was gently patted down. Invisible, invisible. Mm -hmm. Then my two-gallon container of water was emptied over the ground to conceal any uh, looseness of the newly dug soil and to give heart to the uprooted grass. (gasps) Give heart to the uprooted grass. As a finishing touch... Kip Williams produced a fresh cow pat, which he had brought with him all the way from Gloucestershire in a sealed Tupperware container. <laughs> and deputized guests going to deposit this spot uh, to deposit this on the spot where they'd been digging. 
Bamber said he knew the height of the cow's bottom. <laughs> Williams confided to the BBC Four viewers, so he did the pouring and splucked it around very much like it would be, and then we, they left. Oh, my God. How to find it. Uh, how to find this treasure. The introductory lined lines of the book tell readers... Within the pages of this book, there is a story told of love, adventures, fortunes lost, and a jewel of solid gold. To solve the hidden riddle, you must use your eyes and find the hair in every picture that may point you to the prize. Mm -hmm. Like I said, there are 15 illustrations in the book, and each one has a phrase around the border. Mm -hmm. Some of the letters are red in that phrase, Uh and some of the letters have a little barb Uh on them. Those are very easy to decipher and say things like golden hair or fiend foul. Yes. One painting features a giant jelly mold and the words are jelly mold. Yes. I know some of these secrets, Uh although I don't know the answer. Each each picture has a hidden hair in the picture. Some of them are not hidden at all. No. Being like a large picture of a hair. (laughs) I poured over this book a million times. I have found the hidden hairs. Others are more hidden, like in the jelly mold. Um, it, the hair is hidden in the jelly mold, or there's another that looks like a hill. It's, but it, it looks like a hill. Uh-huh. But it's the hair. He packed each painting with elaborate clues, red herrings, private jokes, and a million other tiny surprises. Two of the paintings contained magic squares. When taken together, revealed how a crucial third painting must be read. Yes, it's like a magic square kind of puzzle. Yes, <clears throat> yes. I went home and. My copy is missing, Bullshit. and I am very mad. I have lost three or four. I've lost books that have been stolen from my house by, I assume, guests at parties uh, over my lifetime. But there are like three or four that I'm like, God damn it! And now this is another one on that list. Are you you sure can still been buy like the book. Put in a sarcophagus and buried somewhere. Dad, I don't know that. You uh-huh. are right. Uh-huh. That does I think sound the only like thing a- more exciting than finding this puzzle or solving the puzzle and finding it would be just like I'm a rando kid out frolicking on the moors and I found this thing. Oh Jesus! <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Anyway, go ahead. Go so, ahead. Masquerade the book was published in August 1979 and it sold out immediately. There were like oh, there wow. was like forty thousand sold in like previews. Yes, yes, and then like more and more and mm-hmm. more printing upon printing. The media had been talking about the book prior to publication, and the BBC's popular news magazine program, Nationwide, Nationwide. is on your side, <laughs> was due to broadcast an episode all about it. But at the time, ITV, then the BBC's only rival, were on strike during the crucial week, giving the book's publicity a far bigger audience than it otherwise oh, would have had. Oh, yeah. The book sold hundreds of thousands of copies worldwide. The U.S., Australia, France, Ger- West Germany, Japan. West Germany. <laughs> the Soviet Union. And people flocked right. to England and started digging. Different countries had different ways of thinking about the puzzle. I bet so. William said the American attitude was they would read it, oh, fantastic, and then start guessing. He said, underneath Nelson's column and things like that. No. Dude. It was always guessing. <laughs> where, that whereas the Japanese saw it as a book of philosophy. The puzzle wouldn't work if translated into another language. Mm-hmm. And the international audience sort of accepted that. Well, I have to read it in English. But yeah. Italy was the only country to create its own version. Hmm. Two women, Liliana Denon and Joan Arnold, liked the British edition enough to get William's per- permission and persuaded the Italian rights holder to cooperate. They made their own authorized duplicate of the masquerade oh, hair. Oh, wow. 
lodged it with a Milan attorney and buried a note giving his name and contact details under the heel of the giant Neptune statue at Monteroso al Mare in okay. an area of England called Le Cinque Terre. The in, stat- in England? No, in Italy. Okay. The statue is perched on the edge of a the perched on the wall of a cliff at the sea's edge. Okay. Oh making God. the climb to its heel a treacherous one. Wow. They modified Masquerade's puzzle by translating the phrases surrounding each painting into Italian and then substituting their own numbers into William's two magic squares. Okay. Decoding the squares correctly allowed readers to count the letters around each painting to find the, pra- the phrases Monterosso al Mare and Statua del Gigante. Ah. They also inserted two consecutive sentences into their translated text of Masquerade's story. The first one ending, uh, here's my Italian, Ale Cal, C-A-L-C-A-G-N-A. Can I see? No, Calcinia, Calciania. Ala Calciania. And the second beginning, Del Gigante Oceano, dropping a full stop in between these phrases, Ala Cassiagna del Gigante, or at the heels of a giant. Mm-hmm. In like, Monte del Mayor. It's like, that's a pretty good hint. Uh-huh. This version was published in March uh, 1981 and remained unsolved until May 6th the following year. The finder was a 40-year-old woman named Carla Vignola who climbed the cliff for herself when the heel clue finally struck her a year after buying the book. Mm-hmm. Oh. Danon and Arnold were watching her from a hiding place nearby and showed themselves only when Vignola had successfully excavated her price. Wow. I wonder Pasta how they fuzzle, knew. she said. What do you mean? I wonder how they knew that today is the day I'm going to go climb up the mountain and look for the... I don't know. The heel. I don't know. That's cool. I don't know. Maybe she had been in contact with them yeah, or something maybe like so, that. Yeah. But like... That's fucking cool. That is fucking cool. Because oh. as like, we'll find out. And as you already know, you know, it's like, we can translate this into other languages, but it's not going to work it's the same. It's not going to be the same. And I know, I don't want to, I don't know a lot, but mm-hmm. there's a few things I know and I don't want to step on anything, but there's like the aspect of the mm-hmm. pictures. It's like, I don't know that that would work as well. Right. So, um, back in England, a man named Neil Perrick, an actuary from Cheltenham, <laughs> and his family, they had settled on... They were they were there to solve the prize. I was this, like, we want to win this. Neil Perrick, an actuary from Cheltenham, and his family. They focused their sort of hunt on the second painting, which shows a pair of dancers mm-hmm. representing the sun and the moon, mm-hmm. flanking a merry old gent who's sitting on top of the earth. Yes, and this merry old gent is playing the violin, and he's got um, a, a hair's. Yeah, like hair rabbit, ears, ears, rabbit ears and I think rabbit like feet. feet. Mm-hmm. The moon man's trousers are pa- patterned with a star map on which the words Taurus and Orion are visible. And around the edge of the picture appear all 12 signs of the zodiac, each with its Im- appropriate symbol. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of it was to do with signs of the zodiac, we were reading those out to see what spun off in our thoughts, Neil right. Herrick said. And when somebody said Gemini, that really electrified the whole atmosphere because we would say Gemini. Yes, we are the, there are masses of eyes. Mm-hmm. Which one? And so the family dug out an ordnance survey map of their own county As and found do. the nearby Needle Hole Farm. And what's the hole of a needle called? The eye. The parrots went off to bed in triumph, convinced that they had only to drive a few miles, uh-huh. claim their prize. And once they got there to the 
farm, there were two giant pylons. Twins! Jim and I. And they started digging, what? and they came home with nothing. Uh, um, it was a really good idea, though. It was a really good yeah. idea. Another one, an American woman was convinced that the spot... She wouldn't let him be. ...laid along the prime <laughs> meridian. Ah, uh, yes. But no. Kit Williams was getting hundreds of letters every day asking for clues no. or thinking that they'd solved it. Muddy dudes with shovels would like show up at his house asking for tips. No. It was all very chaotic. And with all of the attention, Williams, who preferred to work in monastic silence, had a really hard time I bet dealing did. with it. Yeah. Knowing what I do now, there is no possible way I could have ever solved this puzzle me i'm not a great puzzle solver yeah i only like crossword puzzles because they're like trivia questions yes, to me that's yes exactly but i'm not a great puzzle solver mm-hmm. but then like knowing this i'm like well, fuck. i know yeah i i when i was given the book i just went nuts and i was sure that i would be the one to solve this magical thing and then as soon as i find it it would give me actual magical powers right, clearly and stuff like that and i'm the one who's <laughs> like there's the rabbit and i'm all right and i just Aww. look but then i've read about it later and i'm like i was nowhere near oh god no anything well <laughs> Here we go. Yes. There's no possible way that I could have ever solved the puzzle, but two guys did. Yes. Mike Barker and John Rousseau met when they were studying physics at Sheffield University. Sheffield. City of industry. And the two men remained friends. They met at university and they remained friends. In 1981, the men and their families were celebrating New Year's Eve at Rousseau's house. And Rousseau's three daughters were looking at Masquerade. Finding the hidden hairs and working out the anagram words along the borders. Uh And then the dads started looking at it, too, and they were quickly drawn into the deeper mysteries contained therein. We'll be the ones (laughs) to do this, Rousseau told Baker. It needs a couple of physicists. (laughs) This, what, you know what this needs? Physicists. Physicists. They got to work (laughs) and soon came to a dead end. The twelfth picture in the book, which is the one that holds the key to the entire puzzle, shows Sir Isaac Newton with marionettes. Mm-hmm. Rousseau stared at that picture long enough to conclude that the hat Newton wore was a beret. That is to say, he had a beret on his head that mm-hmm. sent John and his wife Sheila and his daughter Lizzie off on a 700-mile round trip to Berryhead in Devon, where the two grown-ups left Lizzie sleeping in the car while they went off to dig in the night with their 50-pound metal detector. <laughs> Berryhead. Okay. <laughs> a policeman came along and he said, Hello, love. Where's your mom and dad? Rousseau recalled. And she said, They're out digging for treasure. And he said, Oh, okay then. And he wondered out. <laughs> The only thing that the Russos found was a stash of flattened be- baked bean tins. <laughs> God damn it. And they, but what they realized was they had to verify any and all theories before starting to dig. Yes. And from then on, they were methodical <laughs> in their research of the book, aided. Yes. I'm just going to say, but who's flattened bean tins? Stash? Who's <laughs> stash flattened bean tins? Golly. Yeah, this is a, now to me like masquerade too. The, the real mystery, <laughs> a mystery of the flattened bean tins. They were methodical in their research of the book, aided by a clue that Williams had published in the Sunday Times on December twenty first, nineteen eighty. Mm. The illustration showed Williams surrounded by a mouse, an elephant, a rabbit, a reindeer, a yak, a cat, a hedgehog, a rat an iguana, a snake, a toad, a monkey, an ant, and a snail. Okay. Could you repeat that? (laughs) A mouse, an elephant, a rabbit, a reindeer, a yak, a cat, a hedgehog, a rat, an iguana, a snake, a toad, a monkey, an ant, and a snail. In one... 
In one hand, William holds a fish. <laughs> and in the other, he holds a piece of paper with like a like a cipher uh-huh. on it. There is a label on the fish that says 6,000 with a special kind of symbol. It's it's like an atomic number symbol that shows that the number is an angstrom. Gotcha. A measurement of light wavelength. Yes. 6,000 angstroms equals 600 nanometers, which responds to a reddish orange. So it is a red herring. Oh! What? And if you take a mouse, a an elephant, a rabbit, a reindeer, a yak, a cat, a hedgehog, a rat, an iguana, a snake, a toad, a monkey, an ant, and a snail... <gasps> It spells Merry Christmas. Ah! Ah! Nice. Red herring. Exactly. But like you'd never fucking figure that out. Right. <laughs> it's a red herring. And then he's holding a piece of paper with a cipher on it. Mm-hmm. That was deciphered by fold, like taking the newsprint and folding it in half. Folding the actual piece of newspaper. God, this is just so good. Fold, like you fold the piece of newspaper in half like at... The piece of paper he's holding. Uh-huh. And you fold sort of like that piece of paper in mm-hmm. half. And the symbols come together to match up to make words. And by holding it up to the light. God bless. And reading it in a mirror. <laughs> oh, my it God. It says, to do my work, I appointed four men and 20, the tallest and the fattest, and the righteous, righteous follow the sinister. Okay. Sinister means left. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh. And to follow this, you truly solve the puzzle. The four men in 20 means four fingers and toes out of 20 fingers. The tallest and the fattest are your longest fingers and biggest toes. Okay. And the sinister is to determine the letter order slash decoding using the left sinister. Mm -hmm. Left eyes through left fingers and toes. Mm -hmm. And then the right just right eyes through right Right fingers fingers and and toes. To solve the puzzle, the reader must find all of the eyes and all of the fingers and toes of every creature in the painting, including hidden hairs, including like a little mouse uh-huh. in the corner. Uh-huh. My eyes. Uh-huh. And then draw a line. Yes. From the right eye through the right finger, and then the right eye through the right toes, and then the left eye through the left fingers and left toes. And eventually, they're hitting on a letter Letters in the in border. The and yes. if you do this right, you get the phrase. Catherine's long finger overshadows earth-buried yellow amulet. Midday points the hour in light of equinox. Look you. And if you take the first letter of each word, you get close by Amphil. The treasure was buried in Amphill Park in Bedfordshire, near the park's cross-shaped monument to Catherine of Aragon, at the precise spot touched by the tip of the monument's shadow at noon on the day of either the March or September equinox. Son of... <laughs> it's just making uh, me so excited. I, I wish I could get a boner, because I get a boner. Let tell you. It's like... <laughs> There were a number of confirmations within the book showing that this was indeed the answer. In the very first illustration, the border reads, I am as cold as earth and as old as earth, and in the earth I am one of six to eight. One of six to eight 
refers to Catherine of Aragon. Oh, six. She is eight. Henry the Eighth. One of six to one eight. One of six to eight. Another picture, the one the marionettes uh-huh. was Sir Isaac Newton. And the marionettes are a boy and a girl. And the boy, and the, I mean, it's obvious in yeah. the picture. The boy is Jack, poised to jump over the candlestick. Jack Be Nimble is a rhyme chanted during the old game of candle leaping, mm-hmm. which was played by lace makers on St. Catherine's Day. And Catherine of Aragon <laughs> introduced the Amphil region to lace making. Well, I knew that. Why oh, didn't I figure this right out? Everybody knows that. Jesus. The picture that I mentioned before with all the Zodiac uh-huh. clues was, I mean, the Zodiac was there, but it, the real clues were that the sun and the moon were pictured as a man and woman who were dancing. Inside the, like, there's, like, the border with the words, and then, like, inside that border uh-huh. is, like, another border made up of months of the year, and they, they look like little rulers. Yeah, yeah. With the days marked, and the sun and the moon, as they are dancing, their hands are clasped, and they are pointing towards March, the spring equinox, Uh March 21st and 22nd. The two days when the shadow of Catherine's monument may be pointed to the burial spot of the jewel. The man between them, who is dressed as a hare, is holding a violin, but not playing it. That same man is also pictured in the ninth picture Uh where he is playing the violin which means that in the dancing picture something has stopped in this case the sun so that it could cast a shadow that is pointing you to the treasure that's super esoteric there's also an unintentional clue oh in the, third, that in the third painting, the not-so-hidden hair, which is just a giant picture of a hair, <laughs> is sitting on a rock, and the rock looks like a frog. Mm-hmm. Um, Williams painted it like that because he liked it, but as it turns out, there is a large stone at Amphill Park called the Frog Stone because it's lumpy <laughs> and looks like, like a, a frog. frog. Hey, accidental clue. There are a gajillion other clues that I cannot possibly detail here, but one of the main ones involves the, a four by four number square, which is like those little puzzles oh, with one through slidey. ten uh-huh. with the piece missing. Uh-huh. And in one painting, that little number square matches up with a square of colored letters in the Isaac Newton marionette uh-huh. picture. And the colors represent, match up with the colored rings on newton's fingers as he works the puppets Puppets, okay and which tells the puzzlers which order to go in it's like these numbers here on this match these numbers related to the colors Uh on the strings on his fingers which shows you how to work it out there is another number square in a different painting but that's a red herring and the numbers the painting is of a of a woman and she looks sort of like a dandelion woman and she's yes. she's flying over a city mm-hmm. and down on the ground of the city is a football pitch with numbers yes. on them and it looks like another number square but those numbers are atomic numbers when translated to their elemental abbreviation spell false now think again wow God. it is about Danny Rojas it does <laughs> smell like Danny Rojas it is astoundingly <laughs> complicated and super fucking amazing and you know what they needed some fucking physicists, physicists to they did need problem. physicists to figure this out <laughs> all of us fi- English majors are like I've got this and no. Like, no baby dad physicists no less dad physicists once they solved the puzzle, Baker 
once Rousseau and Baker solved the puzzle, Baker was like ready to start digging. Mm -hmm. But it was Rousseau who'd already spent the night digging in Devon who wanted to make sure (laughs) that every single clue was solved before they set out. And Baker was not that patient. Mm. It's not bad. On January 4th, 1982. (laughs) I keep saying Baker, but his name is Barker. Barker. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Barker. Thanks a lot. All right, let's start again from the top. (laughs) (laughs) On January 4th, 1982, Barker and his family were were returning from a ski trip and took a side quest to Amphill Park to take a look around. Mm -hmm. Since it was not the equinox, Barker measured the shadow of St. Catherine's Cross Monument and used math to determine where the shadow would be in the equinox. But since he didn't have actual instruments... Um, to determine the spot, he was able to narrow it down to a patch of ground about the size of a double bed. Okay. Then, I dig that. Let's go. Well, no, then he went home to build an inclinometer, which is an <laughs> instrument used for measuring angles of slope, elevation, or depression of an object with respect to the gravity's direction. You know, like basic <laughs> shit you can basic make at home. you can make at home. Yeah, you know, just simple. I got this. I already it. forgot that whole sentence. You just I need to go home and make an inclinometer. That's one of my favorite bits mystery science theater. <laughs> There's like, uh, I think it's from This Island Earth, which was the actual in the movie theater, yes, mystery yes, science yes. theater movie. And the two guys who are building yeah like they find something and then they're in their boarding house and they're making it's called an interocitor and so the bots are like what are you are you boys cooking in there no are you making an interocitor no (laughs) (laughs) an inclinometer so barker returned to the scene (laughs) normal view okay sorry Barker returned to the scene on February 18th, 1982 with his homemade inclinometer at the ready. You know. Just, you can't trust it to a store blood. No, no. Inclinometer. You don't have a store blood inclinometer. Just, people just waste money. They're a waste with, of money. With it, he was able to narrow down the spot to a smaller than a double bed. Yeah. And then marked it so he could come back and dig after dark. <laughs> Inclinometers after dark. What started as a hole about two feet square widened into a six by four foot waist deep hole. A nine mile borehole. (laughs) Finding nothing but some broken tile, probably the floor of like a Roman villa. Probably. I know, right? Barker went home and that side. (laughs) Barker went home and decided to come back on the actual equinox to see the exact spot. On the next day. February 19th, 1982, Kit Williams got a letter that read, Dear Mr. Williams, please excuse me from not writing my address, but I, if I am correct about the whereabouts of the hair and this letter fell in the wrong hands, all of my efforts over the past 18 months would be for nothing if I were to be followed to the site, and it's difficult enough with being a, in a public place. I believe the hair to be in this area. This note contained a crude sketch of Amphill Park with the rugby pitch, mm-hmm. the frog stone, and Catherine's cross all in approximately the right positions relative to one another. Stretching north from the foot of the cross that was drawn was a faint shadow with an arrow pointing the word hair. <laughs> hair, hair. Hair. The continued. If I am correct, you will recognize the sketch. If I am not correct, I would like to know as the digging is very hard and I have spent far too much time searching for the hair. You can reach me on telephone number. Please transfer the charge and ask for Ken. Yours faithfully, Ken. Ken. 
P.S. It was very hard to locate you. P.P.S. I have many other clues as well as a sketch. <laughs> Ken, you're just kind of scaring me a little bit. William saw that the map was correct. <laughs> so he called up Ken, whose last name was Thomas, Ken Thomas, and he told him that he won. Ugh. But Ken said he was sick with the cold and couldn't go dig it up right then. Uh-oh. As they talked some more, Williams realized that Ken had not actually solved the puzzle. And it was more like he stumbled across the hair by accident. Oh, man. Ken claimed he'd bought a copy of the book a few months ago after it was published and spotted the one of six of eight, one of six to eight clue and decided that it must mean Catherine of Aragon. And as he happened to live um, near Kimbleton Castle where Catherine died in 1536, that's where he started searching. Finding no luck there, Ken said, he deduced from Bedfordshire's local newspaper coverage that Williams must live in the county and narrowed to likely vi- the likely villages down to two. Mm, Driving around like this, these Ken. villages in the late mm. summer of 1981, he happened to pass nearby Amphill Park and just decided to stop and give his dog a run. Amphill Park is only 20 miles from Kimbleton Castle, but until his visit there that day, Ken Thomas said he hadn't known the park had any connection with Catherine. Mm. It was only when his dog happened to pee against the frogstone, he said, <laughs> that prompted him to notice Catherine's cross. That's a, more details than we needed. It's so. amazing, though. He just happened to stop at uh-huh. Amphill Park. His Had- dog peed on the frogstone, and he looked up at Catherine's like, cross. Wait a minute. Kit Williams had his doubts, as did Bamber Gascoigne. He wrote, <laughs> I'm just imagining Bamber like lounging in a room. <laughs> he says, he wrote, Ken seems extremely vague about his astronomy, although he apparently had a friend who helped him with the calculations and sometimes went digging with him. When I met Ken several months after the discovery of the hair, he was still insisting that it had been buried to the, magne- to the magnetic north of a of the cross and that his earlier digging had been in the direction of true north which was the exact opposite of the case because ken williams buried the magnet facing yes. south yes and then i wrote don't ask but true north and magnetic north can differ by as much as three feet i don't ask us that's like math uh-huh <laughs> before speaking to kit he can have hardly understood the clue about the equinox for that gives precise lengths to the noon shadow and makes pointless Ken's procedure of digging along the entire length Link. of the line. Uh-huh. Ken claimed to have dug a bunch of holes with the help of a man who chose to remain anonymous. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody had con, so he chose to dig a bunch of holes, but nobody had contract contacted the book's publisher Jonathan Cape, saying that they'd found the prize because, like, the whole like instructions. On the casket, we're like, if you find this, contact Stop the now publisher. And call us. Yeah. So Williams had a hunch that the hair was still in place. Mm-hmm. The next day, February twentieth, Ken went to the park, found the big hole, and assumed that Kit Williams had gone out there and dug up the prize himself. Uh-huh. And Kit Williams said, "No, I did not. I'm not going to do that. Go back there and dig some more." And so Ken mm-hmm. said he went to Amphill Park three more times, enlarging the hole dug by Mike Barker and finding nothing else. Kit said he was going to contact the press and say that somebody else found the prize, but Ken persuaded him to wait. Then on February 24th, Ken found the casket 
reburied in the earth that Barker had turned over. Hmm. The casket was very small and the same color as the dirt and thus easily missed while digging in the dark. Oh, man. Ken contacted Williams and said he wanted Kit to be there when they unsealed the casket. But when the day arrived, Ken could not be reached because he had collapsed and gone to the hospital and he remained unreachable for the next week. This is weird. Finally, Ken got in touch again and agreed to meet Kit Williams, Gascoigne, at the site uh-huh. to discuss what came next. He had specified that we had to go to a hotel. This is what Gascoigne says. Ken has specified that we had to go to this hotel and meet him to see the jewel. My wife, myself, and the publisher, no one else whatsoever, no journalists or anybody. Ken was super serious about wanting to keep his identity secret from the public. Mm-hmm. Kit said, when we arrived at the hotel, we went to the reception and they said, oh yes, there's a letter here waiting for you. Ken had a friend waiting in this hotel who was looking out to see us coming across the car park. That there were only the three of us, yeah. me, my wife, and the publisher. And then we were sent to another hotel and it just went on like this. Uh, what the fuck? Ken thinks he fancies himself a treasure hunt maker. Mashler, who Suck was it, the Ken. publisher, was finally able to convince Ken to sit for one TV interview with BBC Omnibus and one newspaper interview with the Sunday Times. And then Ken admitted that Ken was not his real name and even his dog had an alias. Oh, how clever. When the day came to dig up the casket, Kit Mashler, who was the publisher, and BBC Omnibus crew were ready to go. Yes, ready to go. But throughout the day, Ken threatened to call the whole thing off. Well, fuck you, Ken. This is my treasure. Eventually, showing up near dark, hunching in a hooded coat, a scarf against his chin, and pulling his cap as far down as it would to cover his eyes and tilting his face away from the camera. Ken. Just being a drama queen, Ken. Mm -hmm. As Kit heated water to melt over the wax, Ken seemed eager for the whole thing to be over. Later, Kit said, we were suspicious. He was strange in a way that he wanted total anonymity if he was going to talk to the press at all. He had to be in disguise and everything. And I thought, this isn't what I had planned. No. And then when he showed us all his workings out, I thought... I don't know. He's found this out by mistake some way, and mm-hmm. I could not work he out really how he'd the done game. it. Uh-huh. Mike Barker learned about the discovery on the news. Oh. I went into the living room, and the television is on, and there's a helicopter shot of Catherine's cross, and I could see the hole that I dug and the terrible mess it had made. Apparently, someone else had got the hair, and I couldn't for the life of me understand how that happened. He swallowed his shock and tried to focus on what the broadcaster was saying. The bizarre quest ended in a park near the village of Ampthill in Bedfordshire, the announcer said. The finder, who prefers to remain anonymous, in a could, freaky way. could find his persistence has earned him up to ten times the pendant's original value of 3,000 pounds. The most awful thing for me was that somebody had cracked the puzzle and got there before us, Barker said. That was the key thing. Not necessarily that I found the hair. I wasn't too bothered by that. Right. But I wanted precedence on solving the puzzle for my sake and John's. You did solve it. The next day, um, Mike Barker saw Ken's omnibus interview, which was super fucking strange. Ken insisted on being filmed like behind a door of frosted glass oh yeah with his hat pulled down ken 
Dude, if the it glass is, is frosted, nobody can tell you're wearing a fucking hat. Okay? And his voice was distorted oh, by, like, a last-minute telephone rig. He showed up. He's like, I thought my voice was going to be distorted. I'm not going to do it if my voice isn't restored. So they had to, like, throw the fucking telephone line all oh, around. Yeah. And most importantly, he refused to display the treasure. Soon um, thereafter, Mike Barker and... Uh, John Russo wrote to Kit Williams laying out exactly yeah, how like, they look, solved the puzzle. solved it. Mm-hmm. But the letter went to the publisher who sort of put it on the pile with other letters to be sent later in a bundle of the hundreds of letters, letters a day that, that Kit yeah, Williams uh-huh. was getting. A few days after they wrote, um, and they didn't get any response, Barker and Rousseau sent a telegram to Williams oh, reading nice. close by Amphil. Williams got it and knew right away that they had solved it, confirmed when the letter showed up a few days later. Uh But he was forced to tell Barker and Rousseau that there's nothing he could do. Yeah. Williams disappeared into his studio, broken and disappointed with the outcome. It was not supposed to end like this, he said. Ken Thomas went off to found a software company called Hairsoft and offered the golden hair as a prize in a contest which took the form of a computer game called Hair Razor. The game was released in two parts, Prelude and Finale. Once players solved Prelude, they'd have to buy and solve Finale, and then they could enter a competition to find the prize. Yeah, way to go, Dick. This is not your prize. The game is a title screen with the game rules and a series of graphical screens showing grass, sky, trees with text clues across the top and bottom of the screen. Okay, this is just a ripoff. Yes. The hints... In the first part of the game, Prelude, are well-known proverbs and sayings. The only interaction is pressing the cursor keys to follow the hair, which moves across the screen and disappears into one side. There are rooms, which are a non-Euclidean space, which is the user wanting to go back and pressing the appropriate key did not always return to the same place, sometimes ending up in a different room. Sinclair User Magazine, a publication dedicated (laughs) to the Sinclair Research range of home computers, gave the game a 3 out of 10 with this to say. The most sensible motive for buying hair razor is the sincere need to get rich. The sole aim of this program is the discovery of a golden hair somewhere in the game landscape. Do not assume you're getting a fancy version of Kit Williams' Masquerade with complex graphics and a vast extensive plot. The game consists of a number of lackluster, stark, and simple screens depicting the countryside with an occasional hair bouncing around and then disappearing. At the bottom of each of those thoroughly dull pictures appears an obscure phrase which may or may not help you to find the hair or your 30,000 pounds in loom. If you decide to persist with the puzzle, you will still have to buy a second program before completing it. The cassette and even then you won't necessarily get the prize. The cassette insert provides details <laughs> on how to enter. The only instructions on screen tell you to follow the hair with the cursor keys, and there seems to be no evidence of the richness of the original book. None. Quite honestly, it is rather difficult to understand why this program was produced at all, although cynics may draw their own conclusions. Me, I'm gonna zap a few aliens instead. Many people came to the same conclusion that this game was a scam to make money, but it did not work. And in 1988, Hairsoft Company folded and Ken sold the golden hair to Sotheby's, who auctioned auctioned it off to an unknown buyer for 31,000 pounds. Wow. Kit tried to get his creation back, Back. but had to bow out after 6,000 pounds. That's bullshit. This 1988... 
news brought the whole story up again. Uh-huh. The manager and editor of Bedfordshire and Sunday, mm-hmm. a man named yes. Frank Branson, saw the notice of the auction and then now he learned the name of Ken Thomas's company and he did a little digging and was surprised to find what he found. Oh. The owner of Hairsoft was a man named Dugald Thompson who lived about 15 miles from Ampville. Being a local journalist, Branson was able to put together that Ken Thomas was a pseudonym of Dougal Thompson, and his business partner was a man named John Gard. John Gard had a girlfriend named Veronica Robertson, and Veronica Robertson's ex-boyfriend was Kit Williams. (gasps) What? Oh, Veronica. Robertson claimed not to know the exact location of the prize, but she was with Williams in the years leading up to him locating the exact spot. She knew it was Amphill nearby St. Catherine's Cross. Guard, who was the unnamed man who helped Ken slash Dougald dig up the treasure, convinced Robertson to help him, saying that he would donate... The treasure to an animal rights group. Uh, Robertson uh, was a fierce uh, animal rights activist, and he was like, "Help me do this, and I'll donate, and I'll donate." Branson wrote this up for Bedfordshire on Sunday, and a few days later, Barry Penrose of the Sunday Times followed it up with his own story, where he quoted Kit Williams. Bitch, this tarnishes masquerade, and I am shocked by what has emerged. I feel a deep sense of responsibility to all those many people who were genuinely looking for it. Although I didn't know it, it was a skeleton in my cupboard, and I am relieved that it has come out. Oh. Kit Williams vowed, he said, Veronica would not do this. Veronica's not one searching for treasure. No. So, but that was that until 2009, when the BBC Four convinced Kit Williams to allowed them to do a program for the 30th anniversary of the book. And initially he said, fuck no. He was not one like, I'm sad and don't want to do this interested anymore. in talking about the book. But BBC promised and followed through the saying that if he talked a bit about the book, they would focus the rest of the program on him and what he has done since then. Mm-hmm. And they did. And you could watch it on YouTube. And the show led up to an exhibition at the Portal Gallery, which is his first public show in 30 years. Wow. Mike Barker and John Rousseau were invited. They were told um, that while nobody could really tell them about the show, that they really should come, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's going to be really cool. There's going to be like some some really, you know, cool stuff there. You should really go. Barker and his wife had already committed to caring for a family member after surgery mm-hmm. and to try and convince him the BBC straight up said like the hair is going to be there. You should go. But he could not break his commitment and the BBC swore him to secrecy so he couldn't tell Rousseau. Yes. Which almost backfired whenever Rousseau was like if you don't go I won't, I won't go. go. And Barker was like you should really go. go. Russo said that as he went to the gallery, he saw a small box covered with red velvet and he knew it contained the hair. Uh-huh. Kit Williams said this. It looks great. It's very emotional because I had not remembered it as being as delicate as it is. And then when I picked it up, the little bells jingled and it sparkles in a way that I'd forgotten as well. And for 21 years, I had no idea where it was. Oh. As for Russo, he wept. I experienced a great wave of emotion when I thought of all the happy times my family, Mike, and Mike's wife, Celia, had chasing the whole thing and how much my late wife, Sheila, would have loved to see it. And that is the story of Masquerade by Kit Williams. And I got most of my information from a website called planetslayed.com. Which was like a guy who just like writes about stuff. Okay. There's also a website called bunnyears.net that has 
like that breaks it all breaks the way it down. All down and you can see every bit and cool. you can see every bit uh the bbc and wikipedia oh i brought my b book yeah yes a, I- a year later kit williams did another treasure hunt book and the theme was bees and beehives and uh-huh. there's no title to the book and the puzzle is you f- meanwhile you yourself i'm reading from the back cover mm-hmm. meanwhile you yourself will be searching for the title the clues that can enable you to discover it are hidden within the pages of this of this copy of the book kit williams challenges you to discover the title and express it without using the written word he will award a golden queen bee in her box to what is in his judgment the most imaginative reply he receives send your answer to kit williams p.o box 15 grantham lincolnshire england and uh if on the day when the seal is broken, May 25th, 1985, yours is the solution he chooses, this unique treasure he has created will belong to you. Mm-hmm. And there's a pic- the picture of him on the back. I'm like, if you just said, what country do you think this man I is? I know, right? You'd be like, yeah. uh, England. England. <laughs> yeah, no, that picture was like, wh- hey, hey, Brian, what do you imagine Kit Williams to look like? In, like this? A, this? Yeah, <laughs> one, one That's the, the guy. One of the things, Kit Williams has a lazy eye. Yes, he does. And, um... In the Christmas clue mm-hmm. in the Sunday Times, he drew a picture of himself like with his, his lazy eye, eye. Uh-huh. and that was when Barker and Rousseau were looking at it with the clues about like uh-huh. follow your eyes. He saw his lazy eye and realized, although his sort of solution was wrong at the uh-huh. time. He realized that it had to do with like where the eyes, where the eyes in the picture and are looking, eyes in the picture mm-hmm. are looking. And there's one painting in there, and it's it's a circle of animals, mm-hmm. a you know a hare and a goat and a mm-hmm. cat and a dog and a cow in a circle, and that contains so there are so many eyes uh-huh. and paws looking, looking, and it spells out Publish America is a vanity press. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> It does. It mm. says, "Be sure to drink your oval tea." <laughs> God damn it! So, oh, that's amazing, Aaron. Yay! That's an amazing story. And I did. I had that book, and I looked and tried so hard. And then later, when I read about it, I was like, "There was no, absolutely no, no way. way." And Barker and Rousseau were the only, only ones, ones who really it. figure it out because that's you amazing. know what? It needed a couple of physicists. fucking physicists. Yes, it did. And it also goes so much to the genius of Kit Williams. To fucking come up with this shit. That's stunning. Yeah. Not just the beautiful painting creations that he made, but the whole complicated bullshit. Like, like that is a complex Every set of clues. Every single bit of it. The, it's like there's numbers, but it's a red herring, and it spells out false look again. Right, and it's like you have to, so you only know this is a red herring because 6,000 angstroms, angstroms makes a reddish-orange color. Uh-huh. Like, Christ. No. My English, ma- my like eighth grader ass would never None. have figured this out. None whatsoever. <laughs> Midwest city, Oklahoma, pouring over my book. Fuck, <laughs> Christ, I know. <sighs> God, that was a great story, though. Good job, good job, good Thank job. Thank you. Yes. It was worth weathering a tornado you to know find what? out the end. A tornado yeah. party yeah. is its own fun thing. It was a riot. It had been a while no since party. I had a tornado party. Like it was. a tornado party. Let me tell you what happens during a tornado party. You get drunk. You get drunk yeah, on the porch yeah, while yeah, the rain yeah. falls all around you. We, Brian got out his guitar. We had a little sing-along. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. <laughs> Indeed. So. All right. Well, um, half time's half happening. Time. So you work out your uh, B answers. <laughs> yes, I need you to come up with the answer. If it's a book about bees, what would the answer be? 
My girl likes to party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. Those guys we talked to were physicists or even dads. Wow. They said that they knew what was going on, but I knew right away that they had no idea what was going on. See? I mean, that guy just, the one guy just had a van. Like, I, that was it. I no. was throwing references to the periodic table in there. Not, they didn't get any of they them. They didn't get shit. No. Fuck those guys. <laughs> Stupid fake physicists. Get out of here. God. You know, just because you have a van doesn't mean you're a physicist. I know. Oh, no. And he was like, I've got some golden hairs back in my trunk. Do you want to come and see him? No. No, no. thanks. I'm cool. He's just digging holes in public parks and needs to cut it out. Just because you're digging a hole. Call before you dig. Call before you dig. Save lives. God damn it. Anyway. Aaron, yes. How old were you when you read Clan of the Cave Bear? <gasps> oh fuck! How old was I when I read? Ca- too young. Teen, too young. Um, probably twelve. Oh, uh, how old were you when you went? Oh my god! What the fuck actually is this book? <laughs> twelve. How many of the sequels did you read? Mm, three of them. I think that's how many I read too. I read the second Valley of Horses, mm-hmm. uh-huh, where she invents everything, like tames horses and. <laughs> Invents, invents medicine. <laughs> if she invents hair braiding for fun, she invents braiding hair and bras and bras. What the hell? So when I were, so I was in fault. library school. Uh, I sat next to this. Uh, I say girl. She was yeah. young, but whatever. Yeah, Her whatever. name was Marsha, and like she was amazing, but she also looked exactly like Jack Black. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she was super Everybody funny. She was super. Yeah. She was super hilarious, and she was great. And it was when the latest, when the final book came uh-huh. out, and we, our library school was, like, we were in Tulsa, but school was in Norman, yes. so we were, like, watching it, so we were all, like, I was in Norman watching it in Tulsa. Uh-huh. Was so we were, like, all, like, reading books in our laps mm-hmm. and stuff like that, and she she was reading the latest one, uh-huh. and which I should know the answer. Which, Mammoth Hunters? No, it? no, 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 it was, like, the final one. Oh, the final one, okay. That I can't remember what his name is, and I should. But At the Mountains of Madness? No, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, shit, there you are with Jean Delar the Wonderschlong. <laughs> and I was like, I'm surprised, like, she invented everything. Uh-huh. I'm surprised she didn't Contraceptives. I'm surprised, listen, I was like, I'm surprised she didn't, you know, get pregnant all the fucking time. She's like, she's got her moon teeth. <laughs> Marsha was like, she's got her moon, got her moon teeth. And so it was so great sitting next to Marsha while she was reading the final book, and we were like clowning out it all the time, <laughs> out on it all the time. Oh my god! I yes. also saw that fucking movie with like yes. you and Dad. Yes. Oh, we did, and it was oh my god. Do you know who else loved those books? Who? Brian's mom. Oh. I was just about to say, like, I like I as <laughs> tell for, us, Brian. What for my own part, I remember starting to see those books sitting around in eh, like the early eighties. Yes. Yes. I can narrow it down to that. Uh, yeah. To be fair, 
Everybody read Clan of the Cave mm-hmm. Bears. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was new and interesting enough. Oh, yeah. it was. No, I don't remember Mom talking about it any. Uh, no, like, no. But because, because Shogun uh, dominated everything, uh. <laughs> particularly the TV movie. And, like, yes. it was really funny because Dad started to get a little irritable. Like, because they, you know, they would show Shogun, like, about once a year. <laughs> Do we like, have to watch this again? Usually yeah. during the summer. It was, it was like, oh, the Shogun's on again. Oh, like, Jesus, Kevin, Chamberlain. go read a fucking book. Yeah. Yeah. She needs a moment with Richard Chamberlain, yeah. okay? Don't we all? I, I'm amazed Mom could pick Richard Chamberlain out of a lineup, though, considering we were all watching it on, on like, I, I want to say, like, an 8-inch black and white TV, <laughs> like, portable. Like, it was... It, it you're was, on air-conditioned It's criminally rude. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Clan of the Cave Bear Man, with her magic tea and her inventing everything. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And all the hand signals. She was, like, the very first one to have, like, a regular baby? I mean... <laughs> well, she had a baby that was half... Uh, half like I don't know, Homo erectus, half Neanderthal, mm-hmm. and, half and half like Dutch, Dutch, exactly. <laughs> that's how it works. That's that's exactly how it works. So when the yes. Dutch the Dutch colonized the past. <laughs> <laughs> the Portugal and the Netherlands sailing right. back. And God, forth. they were so pissed. The Dutch were <laughs> there. God damn it! <laughs> it was like, hey, Portugal, Netherlands, Spreckenzy Dick. <laughs> <laughs> that is yes. a stepbrothers joke, and you're welcome. Ah, oh, good times. Good well, I'm glad you brought up that she had a, a, a mixed, like, species baby because mm. that baby was kind of like a missing link. <gasps> you think? Yes, so? but it was hot. Well, yeah. No, that baby, well, she got taken away from her. But anyway. <laughs> hot baby. <laughs> hot baby. Like the hot and then she and John Delar had a different baby that was like... That was fully hot. Fully hot. The last book I read was The Mammoth Hunters, and I only read about... Um, Hunting mammoths? No, I only read... Gosh, probably like four, five, six chapters into it. Which was about 500 pages. Which is about 500 <laughs> pages. But it was when they're there, and they're like, oh, but... The, oh, the other John Delar's like sister or something reaches and opens up her tunic and says, "A woman always proudly displays her breasts at her matrimonial." And I'm like, "I am done with this book, <laughs> dude." There was all right, thing, and like there was extreme horniness in all of these oh, books, all of them. But I distinctly <laughs> remember uh, proof that I read these too young was that like John Delar just got like so extremely horny he had to go and like dig a hole and like J-O in it yes. and I was just like what the <laughs> what is fuck doing? is going on why is he doing this and also ma'am why are you writing a book where it's like they can't even get to it's just weird anyway <clears throat> I she I don't know she and Diana Gableden should be like BFFs because they seem oh, to be doing the kind of same kind of my stuff my god like, it is some extreme Mary Sue-ness it's like horny Mary Sue shit 100% where it's like I'm in hair braiding. And meanwhile, like Claire and Outlander's like, I made my own fucking Revolutionary War penicillin. Right. And both of them had knowledge of herbs and healing. Because that's the only herbs. power a woman can have in the past. That's, that's right. 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 The only she power gets, the like, woman can have is she's got knowledge of herbs and healing. And that Okay, can... so if this isn't about Clan of the Caper, I don't know if I want to listen to the rest of it. Well, you do. Because <laughs> it is about the longest living scientific hoax, Piltdown Man. <gasps> yeah. So we're headed back to Britain. I'm to so dig in the excited. Dirt. Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species in 1859. Mm-hmm. And for a long time in anthropological circles and in the public mind, there was the belief that before too long, the missing link would be found. 
Like the missing link is one fucking thing. Was one fucking thing. Yes. It's like going against all of evolution. Nope, 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 nope. No. Well, evolution had just again just been discovered. It's true. It's true. It's legit. Just been discovered. And they believed that there would be a hominid that mm-hmm. was between apes and man with the distinctive features of both. Mm-hmm. This theory is called orthogenesis. The idea that we pro- uh, ev- pro- evolution progressed in a line like the drawing right. of the hominids where the last one's like up. wearing an iPod or something. Exactly. And there were like <laughs> about like 200 years apart. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. In just a few years. But yeah, the ever the evolving chain. Of, this is no longer the belief. No. Now the concept of evolution is something called a braided chain, mm-hmm. which is, looks like a tree and it has intermarried, intermixing and stuff like uh-huh. that. It takes a long time. There's like lots of branches and that lots start. Of branches and that stop. start and go nowhere and stuff like that giraffes are the end of the line giraffes are the end of the line yes giraffes are at their uh, evolutionary end there's no place else for them to go there's no other ones and there's no place else for them to go there's that they're the only ones and they look like this for this to go with these trees Mm -hmm. where they live and that's it i love giraffes they're my favorite animal giraffids giraffids my uh being an elementary school teacher i have of favorite animals and favorite yes. sports teams that uh-huh. I can talk even though I don't like sports I have you know go Ravens she hey. also doesn't like animals I <laughs> fucking hate them anyway but when kid, I, somebody asked me this week Miss Clay what's your favorite animal and I was like giraffes giraffes so we talked about giraffes yay but yes but that's not how evolution works no it does not it does. but for a long time people were searching for the missing link right <clears throat> and you may have heard of Java Man and Peking Man oh dear these were early hominid they were found in Java and near Peking mm-hmm. uh, early hominid fossils which were at one point in their lives considered the missing link. They didn't find any hominids in Africa for a long time no. because they didn't look in Africa because like, humanity could not possibly why, have originated there. Why start God. there? Why start there? That couldn't possibly be it. Hume, yeah. Civilization could not have existed in as uncivilized <laughs> places as that. that. No, for real. Christ yes. almighty, you yes. guys. So they did not look in Africa at all until the leakies went down there and guess what they found? In the leakies? Uh, in the guys? 40s? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we're still in 1829. Okay. In 1829, Bones were found in the Neander Valley in Germany. Wow. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Is that where they came from? That's why they're called Neanderthals. Wow. They were found in the Neander no, Valley. And then so, a little bit later, some were found in France. Mm-hmm. Britain was not pleased. Fucking furious. <laughs> we have been in civilization. Like Darwin is British. Why don't we have a hominid? Where is the earliest Englishman? In Rome. <laughs> no. <laughs> in Africa. But anyway... <laughs> But yeah, they were mad. They were just straight up big mad because Germany and France had found hominids and they didn't. Pissy little bitches. Yes. But then on December 18th, 1909, a man named Charles Dawson, who was, quote, a lawyer and antiquarian from Uckfield, Sussex, (laughs) who was not an actuary from Cheltenham, (laughs) steward of the manor at Barkham and presided over the court's baron. More like Suckfield, Sussex. He brought some pieces of an extremely thick skull to a man named Arthur Smith Woodward, who was in the geology department of the British Museum. Okay. Dawson said he had found these bone shards in a gravel pit near his home, and he believed that there were more to be found. Okay. Woodward. Because he killed several people. (laughs) I do not know why, but I just found these. I just found these. I found them. This one's got blood on it. Woodward was thrilled. Thrilled. Oh, I bet. And went, wanted to hear the stories. He went to Piltdown with him, because Piltdown's a town. <clears throat> he poked Going the gravel, down to Piltdown going Town. Going down to Piltdown Town. 
pokes so through the gravel piles himself. To forget. <laughs> Went down, down to Pill Downtown. Does something. Pill Downtown! I'm a traveling man. Ignore this verse about Eskimo. <laughs> so he just like poked around with this cane Anyone. at the top of the gravel pit and just bones were just well, popping up. <laughs> Dawson had been walking on a path and he noticed that on the sides of the path were some darker colored flint. Right. That made him think, hmm, hmm. what's this? That's, there's a dark colored flint. So he went to the like the groundskeepers and was like, where did you get the rocks for this path? Is it? Okay. Yeah. Is it like a park? Because you say gravel pit, and I just imagine okay. like a gravel pit, but it's, there's like paths. It's like no, a it's, quarry. there was a okay. He was walking on a path in like a park near an estate kind of uh-huh. thing because there's lots of public paths in England. Yeah, and then when he saw the different colored flints, he went to the groundskeepers of the nearby estate and okay. said, "Did you guys make this road? Where did you get this rocks?" Okay, and they were like, "Over here, sir." Okay, <clears throat> and so he went to that gravel pit and dug around in it mm-hmm. uh, and found this skull. Fr- this thick. It's a thick, thick skull <laughs> yes. with two C's. With two C's and a key. You can tell that but- skull has a huge butt. <laughs> the buttocks <laughs> right on this skull. It was, yeah, bouncing. So, but, so he went, Clap it. was excited, and he said, all right. So they went back to the gravel pits, poked through some more. Dawson found some other skull fragments. Mm-hmm. It is worth pointing out that he always found them on his own over to one side, never found them in Woodward's presence, and Woodward didn't find anything. But oh. this is above board, and you should not think anything about it, okay? Not also, they're just, all. like, right at the surface. Right there. things that are yeah. underground, like, have a way of, like, working themselves up. Like, right. Wood splinters. Things like that splinter. are 75,000 years old just work to yeah. come to the top that's of a how, gravel pit. Yeah, that's like how dinosaur bones work that's, that's all of it so all of seems it. legit all right continue good. no questions no questions i'm glad they discovered more skull fragments in nearby gravel slush piles uh major discovery woodward it's like a colossal is- skull from all these fragments <laughs> <laughs> i will mention now that when i Just sat down to begin time. my <laughs> it's like the size of an actual football helmet <laughs> it is <laughs> Uh, I did my research. I found a lot of de- a lot of info on this uh-huh. and some documentaries. So naturally, I started with a documentary uh, called the BBC Chronicle from 1973. Hot shit. Oh hell there's yeah! Nothing uh, better than early 70s BBC. I love early 70s BBC. This, there are some early 70s BBC where they talk to Kit Williams, hell my yeah. friend. This episode was entitled The Ape Man That Never Was The Rise and Fall of the Sussex Missing Link. Nice. And one of my, this documentary did not disappoint. One of my favorite moments came when the narrator paused to explain to the listeners that an orangutan <laughs> is a creature from the Far East. Like, you could hear what? the hyphen in orangutan. Orangutan. A creature from, like, that's the best you can say. A creature from the Far David East. David Attenborough had been working at the BBC for well, like 25 not on years at that point. You could have just asked me but uh, my but uh, i mention it now because they also said about this moment dawson was proud of his thick shard of human skull and woodward was impressed rude <laughs> highly rude sat there nodding <laughs> smiling mm-hmm. so then dawson and woodward kept digging in the gravel pits and eventually found more teeth including a hippo tooth and an elephant tooth which showed signs of carving and which they debated. I, the scrimshaw. <laughs> no, no. They debated whether it was a ceremonial object or something like an early cricket bat. <laughs> <laughs> it's an ancient cricket bat. <laughs> <laughs> it's an elephant 
attitude. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's records showing that how we invented cricket in like 1850. No, apparently we those were like ancestral memories no. that reemerged. Oh, you guys, you are trying really hard. I I will. We are desperate to have our own. Fucking ancient man. We they are desperate to have their. Meanwhile, own Ireland is like, bitch. How many have you got? Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, the Ireland. What? <laughs> They're barely human themselves. An orangutan <laughs> from Ireland. That's right. They're orange, like right. the Irish people, <laughs> covered in orange fur, like the people of Ireland. Yeah. Oh, they also found some primitive napped flint tools, which were either more impressive or more sus because they did not look like any napped flint tools that had been found by anyone, anywhere, at no. any time. No, 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 I think by the time the Romans showed up, they didn't need flint tools anymore. Uh, eventually, the dig produced the piltdown jaw. Okay. And the crowd really did go wild. Right. Uh, Dawson did not personally discover the piltdown jaw, but it is true that the piece lay in the mud, and he kept going like, gee, what's that? Oh, shit. Gosh, is that oh a bone? Until somebody else picked it up and was like, I believe it's a jawbone. Right, because he'd, like, buried it earlier in yes. that day. Oh, oops, I'm sorry. You're misboiling <laughs> it? You are. I, I tried really hard to find a way to work the phrase Dawson's crap into this. <laughs> That's the title of the uh, episode. Dawson's okay. crap. There we go. Masquerade okay. and Dawson's crap. <laughs> so Woodward announced that a reconstruction of the fragments indicated that the skull was in many ways similar to that of a human, except for the occiput, which is the part of your skull Mm -hmm. against your spinal column, the size of the brain, which Mm -hmm. was about two-thirds the size of a modern human, Mm -hmm. and went on to indicate that the jawbone had ape-like front teeth, but human-like molars. Oh, so like grinders and... Grinders and Straight-up stabby grinders. Fangs. Carnivore fangs. Carnivore fangs, like a fucking baboon. Yeah, like, yeah. Ah! Those chimpanzees, they will fucking they kill will you. fucking kill you. I saw a picture yesterday on something of like terrifying. a chimpanzee with alopecia, so it had uh-huh. no fur, and it was just like ultra ripped. <laughs> they can't swim. Chimpanzees can't swim because their muscles and bones are so dense, oh, and yeah. they have so little body fat. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so they just sink like stones. Yeah, they just sink like stones. They also have, like, most of our DNA. Also true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you will not find a missing link between us because kids, students ask me, it's like, did we evolve from apes? I said, no. We and apes evolved from a common ancestor or else there would not be apes anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For the British Museum's reconstruction of the skull, Woodward proposed that Piltdown Man represented the missing link between apes and, apes and humans. The human-like cranium, the ape-like jaw, and that <laughs> We had the head, that's all that's we need all to know. We need. <clears throat> and this tended to support the prevailing notion in England that human evolution began with the brain. Right. Dawson found there was <laughs> It's the hands. <laughs> there was Piltdown One, which was the major find, and then there was Piltdown Two and Piltdown Three, which were fields that were nearby okay dawson kept finding bone and skull fragments in fields adjacent to the original find and pretty soon they got the blessing of the society or or pretty soon he's like okay we got to take this to the national geographic society basically okay uh like bony m here was declared the (laughs) oldest ancestor in all of humanity 
Uh, I saw more than one newspaper from the time showing how Piltdown men fit right in between chimpanzees, the highest form of ape, and... Not even gorillas? Chip, no. Between chimpanzees, the highest form of ape, and the Padwang people from Myanmar, the lowest form of man. Oh, no. This is not... God. This is what I saw in a Victorian newspaper. This is not me saying that, but it was was. It was oh. like, clearly this fits right here between these two. Those are actual human beings. Yes. <laughs> what no oh there were some people who were not fooled from the very beginning good for them because they were like i've actually studied this shit yeah a dude named lewis abbott quote a jeweler and fanatical amateur archaeologist damn dude <laughs> was instantly suspicious of the claims and implied that they had falsely aged the bone uh and like just constructed it out of stuff they found uh-huh. but dawson did not back down and other people got excited enough. They took their stuff to, and they were like, look what we found. And they all went nuts. The, uh, the Royal Geographical Society. Dorks. Yes. Since Woodward's reconstruction included ape-like canine teeth, in August 1913, or a space for them, but they couldn't find the teeth. Uh-huh. Uh, Woodward, Dawson, and a man named Tillard de Chardin. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about him in a minute. He was Is a Jesuit. Is he related to Pierre Cardin? He was a Jesuit priest who was actually very important. I'll tell you more about him in a minute. Mm-hmm. They started a search of the soil, the heaps, trying to find the missing canines. Tillard. Like they're just going to be like up there in the dirt. Tillard soon found the canine. Oh, well, That fit the job perfectly. And then a few days later, Tillard moved back to France and never took part on the discoveries again. More on him in a minute. Fantastic. <laughs> For reasons yes. totally not... Cheap so French so lies. Cheap French lies. So then uh, Woodward expected these this find of the teeth mm-hmm. to end any dispute over this being a reconstruction. <laughs> I know, right? Right. We found these teeth. So clearly this is it. They fit. But a man named Sir Arthur Keith, we'll talk about him in a minute too, attacked the find, pointing out that human molars are the result of our side-to-side movement. They're the grinding. Uh Uh-huh. But those canines wouldn't let your jaw move side-to-side. Mm-hmm. That's Uh, right. Like saber-toothed tigers. Right. They can't move their jaws side-to-side. These these canine teeth were too long, but the molars were ground down in the back. Mm -hmm. I I wish it was just like... A country dentist. (laughs) (laughs) A Grafton Elliott Smith, a fellow anthropologist, signed with Woodward, and at the next Royal Society meeting, he claimed that Keith's opposition was motivated by ambition because he did not want somebody else to find the missing link. He wanted to find it himself. He's like, no, I'm just saying this is wrong. Wrong. Keith later recalled, such was the end of our long friendship. Well, fracas. Fighting in the Geographical Society right there under the Darwin portrait. There's a painting that I'm going to include with our pictures, literally, of, like, the Geographical Society standing around a table looking at Dawson holding the Piltdown Man skull while a painting of Darwin looks on. It's just like, It's it's quite a painting. But it's not an actual skull. They just found bits and a jawbone. I'm getting there. Okay. As early as 1913, David Waterston of King's College London published in Nature his conclusion that the sample was an ape mandible and a human skull. Uh, A French paleontologist named Marceline Boulle concluded the same thing in 1915. And a third opinion came from an American zoologist, Garrett Smith Miller. They were like, no, this is a a human skull and an ape jaw. Oh, man. This is P.T. Barnum shit. uh, (laughs) Yes. Uh, In 1923, Franz Wiedernike 
examined the remains and reported, he's like, no, this is a human skull and an orangutan jaw with filed down teeth. Nine, the man. But no, the Geographical Society was married. Doubled down. They accepted this was the new missing link. They called it Eoanthropus Dossioni, which means Dawson's Dawn Man. Oh, bar. Over Christ. And the story surrounding it was immediately used in anti suffrage propaganda about how. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, look, human men have big skulls and brains, and therefore women shouldn't vote. I don't know. Women. They also have, like, fangs. It's a wild time. I also have to say that they were using anything they had to keep anything women from they had voting. to keep women from voting, including like starving them to death. But um, the, the documentary also had a brief Darwin's Journal's voiceover with a dude that sounded like the Swedish chef. No, <laughs> 1970, 1970 BBC uh, documentary. They were like, dude. But at 1916, at the height of all this shit, Dawson died. Just like in World War Two. No, War just one. died. <laughs> And he wasn't around to see what became of his magnificent find and his page in the history books, because that's for the best. Because uh, the suspicious people are only going to get more suspicious, and we are only 30 years from carbon dating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anthropology is keeping on, keeping on, and this is going to be bad news for Piltdown Man. You, it's really catching up pretty quick, yes. and as we saw, many other people are like, wait a minute. <laughs> Piltdown down to Boulder shitting. <laughs> In 1948, a man named Kenneth Oakley was developing the fluorine test, uh-huh. a chemical Ooh. test to determine the age of fossils. Mm-hmm. And once he had perfected Rad. the technique, he was excited to go test it on Piltdown Man. Find out. Find t- out exactly, <laughs> really, how old our oldest English ancestor is. Oh, my God. Just get it. So, yeah, he tested it, and it was like, this is not old at all. Then he went, this isn't even human. Oh, no, the skull is human. Then he went to the museum vault to get the other skull fragment and found that that was missing. At this huh. point, you just we just lost it. We just lost it. So he wrote. He like talked to other members of the Geographical Society, and finally, a man named Joseph Weiner just said, "Do you think maybe all of this is a hoax?" And then Joseph Weiner went to the head of anthropology at Oxford and was like, do you think this is all of a hoax? All a hoax? And they legit got on the candlestick phone and asked for anthropology 65,000 and <laughs> said, said to Oakley, go right now and look at the skull with a critical eye right now. Okay, so this was an American? No, no, no. This was a, these are all British people. Oh, Joseph okay. Weiner went to the head of anthropology uh-huh. at Oxford and said, I have a concern. They literally like, well, let's call him. Okay. They called him and said, go look at the skull. Which has to be kind of challenging, yeah. you know, at the time. is mm-hmm. like, you know, to call this dude and be like, I think this is a fake. I think this is a fake. That was just like so like roundly accepted and celebrated. This is 1948. No fucking it's shit. Been 40-something years. The war is over. The war is over. This is the oldest skulls. This this is where life began. This is the right oldest. Right here in, in England. England. So, but yeah, they said, go right now and look at the skull. Oakley called them back within an hour and said, um, okay, the teeth have been filed with a metal file. <laughs> Straight up. I can see that. <laughs> yeah, nobody had looked because they didn't want to know. <laughs> Many closer looks soon followed and they learned that the darkened surface of the bone scratched right off. 
The brownish color of the teeth was a paint color called Van Dyke Brown that was easily available in local shops. Oh, my God. X-ray imaging and high-resolution CT scans showed that... If 1948. Right. Well, later, but this Mm -hmm. is... But they had X-ray imaging, and they showed that the teeth were full of gravel and pebbles, which all came from piltdown sediment, and the putty was used throughout the bones to hold the gravel plugs in place and to keep one of the jaws in place. Oh my god. So it's like, it's like, it's got fucking putty holding the teeth in, but y'all never <laughs> looked at it because you did not want to. <clears throat> and uh, DNA analysis uh, now linked the canine and molar teeth to separate piltdown sites to the same original orangutan. But wow. Orang-utang. Oh, orang-utang. The thick skull was a deformed human. I'm sorry to use the word deformed. I don't know what else. But the thick skull was a human skull of somebody who had a defect that Did caused I them t- to have very thick bones. Uh-huh. But, but the orangutan jaw was a 15th century orangutan who died in the East Indies. What the fuck? Where did you get that, Dawson? Well, it was at somebody's fucking manor house it or was- some shit like that. Just Yeah, maybe. Oh, maybe. Yes. We don't know this for sure, but there's a good clue later. Well, because for a second I was like, I hope they didn't fucking kill an orangutan. They, no, they this. did not kill an orangutan. Uh, and I'm like, notice that I didn't say, where'd you get a deformed human skull? Like, sure, whatever. But like, where'd you get an orangutan from the 15th century? But yes, this all proved that no scientist nor historian had done even the barest hint of scientific rigor. They had believed it because they wanted to believe it. And now it was a hoax. It damaged British science a lot because (laughs) many years they had been rejecting other findings. Like from Africa? Yes, because they're like, look at this. And they're like, no, no, no. That's not this. The Piltdown skull has a much bigger brain. These small brain things are not actual early hominids. Guess what? Not cool, you really? guys. I even saw a newsreel where a bemused American gent declared, Britain's August Natural History Museum is all a dither. <laughs> <laughs> yes, reputations were destroyed. Textbooks had to be rewritten. Creationists all over the world were emboldened I by bet. the fact that this was bullshit. And the burning question, who hoaxed the world this was very funny because everything i read and watched would pose this question and then immediately cut to someone who's like oh it was dawson 100 <laughs> yeah, yeah it was definitely dawson yes yeah maybe some people helped but it was dawson well, he's the one who called him up and, and said look it. what i found yes look what i made i found found yes. the bbc documentary kept delivering hit after hit i also watched an episode of uh, in Search of History from 1996. Nice, nice. Uh-huh. And I read a bunch of uh, 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 that one, the BBC special, which also included an older BBC special, which I'll show. I, nice. Yeah. It's like, well, let's reference this older BBC special. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was, yeah, everybody was like, oh, that was Dawson. The documentary at one point started showing a part of a BBC documentary from the 50s about the same Fantastic. topic. Fantastic. It's on like a, a Matryoshka doll. A it BBC did. It was like showing on an old TV and then the camera pulled back and it was the same guy who That's was 20 awesome. years older talking about it. That's I love that kind of journalism. I do too. It was great. He and two other like scientists and presenters, one of whom I swear to God, his name never caught because it was like, if you know, I could not, I rewound several times. I do not know his do name. Do not know. His name is, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, snidely top and middle bottom or something. top and middle bottom. Yeah, they oxbridged his name right through their noses and I never could figure it out. <laughs> it was received pronunciation to the inch. <laughs> Uh, it's pronounced Finch. They sit there and 
Like at one point they, they they said, "Who would do this?" Well, let's look at this photograph of Dawson once again. Not this is the face of a man who would deceive his colleagues, deceive his public, deceive the world. He just looks like a dude. It's like <laughs> fucking savage. <laughs> also, at one point they refer to Hastings as the can of England. Um, <laughs> what? I, I don't know. You can almost hear somebody well, in the background like- shouting, "Camera one, camera two, <laughs> camera one." <laughs> I don't know. It all has a very... I think if anything's going to be the can of England, it's going to be Devin. Okay. That's what I say. That's what you say. Uh, Is Hastings on a coast? I don't know. (laughs) It has to be. It is. is. Look, listen. This is not called Hastings. This is Hastings. Hastings, Okay. (laughs) The whole documentary has a very look around you feel. (laughs) And if y'all haven't watched Look Around You, you should. It's amazing. Because it's so fucking funny. I lived in London when this series started, and the first time I watched, I saw one, I was just watching TV, and then the show ended, and then this 10-minute thing about germs popped up, and I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? But yeah, Look Around You is great, especially the first, there's two seasons. The second one has Olivia Coleman in mm-hmm. it, and those are like 30-minute episodes, but the first season are 10-minute things that look like school films, to the point where the guy's saying, get out your copybook and make a note of this. Yeah. <laughs> but this around. is very Look Around You. Uh, there are some theories as to co-conspirators. Mm-hmm. Many people whose names uh, I've already mentioned. Sir Arthur Keith uh-huh. had built a rep- his career on Piltdown Man, and he was full of rage. I bet. And shit. Yeah. Yes. The ma- he wrote in his diary, the man who I had the most reverence for betrayed his best friend and me. <laughs> Not his best friend. <laughs> But Keith was still kind of sus. In his diaries, he records having written an article about how thrilled he was to hear the announcement of the Piltdown discovery to the Geographical Society. But that meeting was on a Wednesday, and the diary entry is on the Monday beforehand. Oh, really? He also had a motive. His pet theory was that the missing link would have a big brain. Right. But they only kept finding skulls with small brains, and this does not help his academic career at all. So possibly he and Dawson cooked this up for notoriety and help on his papers. He pretended to not be connected with the digs or to Dawson so that everything would have more legitimacy. Okay. Another possible co-conspirator was Father Tillard de Chardin. He was a Jesuit priest and a renowned anthropologist who wrote a book called The Phenomenon of Man, which was kind of a religious approach to evolution yeah i know i know those people that cannot give up their religion keep scraping and scraping going well really it's like this and you're like okay sure no yeah or maybe your book was never mind but these are actual bones (laughs) you've got something maybe your shit is fake ah uh Chardin articulates a vision, and this is a quote, a vision of the universe itself as gradually increasing in complexity and unity from early chaos into even greater oneness. Okay. Drawing on his Christianity, he argues for a morally idealistic understanding of human nature, which social advancement under the watchful eye of God, which will all, which will eventually evolve us all to an absolute state of collective consciousness. It's all super bullshit. Yeah, well. So, Tillard was sus for a few reasons. He was on the original digs with Dawson and Woodward. Gotcha. He's the one who found the canine tooth that was the missing piece. Oh, it's right here. And he found it in a place that Woodward had been looking. And then he was like, oh, my God, look, guys, it was right here all along. (laughs) And then literally two days later, he noped back to France and was never involved in the project again. (laughs) But he did refer to it in his book. Of course. Yes. 
People think he was involved because he wanted scientific backup for some of his personal theories. Probably, yes. Uh, uh, whether or not he was yeah. in on it, he was a big deal I'd never heard of. Has a huge Wikipedia page. If you want to read more about him and his service in Morocco during the war. And Shady. how the Catholic Church hated his writing and tried to ban him from teaching. What? Yeah, well, they, he was talking about, like, I believe that evolution is part of God's creation. Uh, and they were like, stop yeah. talking! Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, like, like Catholic fighting. Who gives a shit? Mm-hmm. But we're almost <laughs> done. <clears throat> um, another possible co-conspirator is the most fun. Whomst would be involved in a late Victorian pseudoscience spooky shit. Oh, God. Like in England? Uh-huh. In England. Late Victorian spooky late Victorian. science shit. Uh, sciency, spiritualism y. I just keep thinking Houdini, but that's not Arthur it. Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh my there God. Is. Okay. Houdini is a, what is a good guess. Yeah, he was, was like, but no, American. he's American. Right. No, Arthur Conan Doyle. Doyle lived seven miles from the discovery site. He was personal friends with Dawson and Woodward. I bet. And he used to walk around those gravel pits because it was near his favorite golf course. Nice. He <laughs> was also known to acquire and keep weird shit around his house, like maybe a thick cadaver skull and the jawbone of a 15th century oh, orangutan. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. He also wrote a book called The Lost World, which is about dinosaurs and the missing link. Uh-huh. Oh. He delivered that book to the publisher three days before Piltdown Man hit the news. Oh, really? And the map of The Lost World is a map of Piltdown. Oh, shit. Shut up. Uh, his motives? Just for kicks. I know, you know, right? Well, I'd love to do shit like this. Dude, I shoot cocaine, <laughs> motherfucker. Uh-huh. So Arthur Conan Doyle might have been involved. My Arthur Conan Doyle was definitely involved. That's my thought is just too. We don't need to back this shit up. It's our That's own That's Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> definitely in fucking involved. <laughs> yes. So, the Natural History Museum these days is super pragmatic about it. Mm-hmm. There's a page on their website talking about Piltdown Man and how this used to be their prized find, but mm-hmm. now it is a hoax. Uh-huh. I remember seeing going to the Natural History Museum and seeing a photo of the dig, which hangs near the main staircase, and I remember it because there's a goose in the picture who's like the dig mascot. He's in all the pictures, he's just like hanging out with What him. are you fucking doing, guys? Yeah, hey, yeah, dig it over here. He's like, oh, the goose is back. Oh, hey, here's it. And Penny Turns and I used to the- like, laugh about that goose. A lot. Goose had been indicted for fraud. The goose <laughs> was involved. That's right. It was Arthur Conan Doyle's goose, and they used to report back to him. That's right. Had an insane blow problem. Yeah. There is a pub in Piltdown called the Piltdown Man. Hobbs. And I have not been there yet, but I will. I hope there's a comma in it. <laughs> the Piltdown Man. <laughs> One of the things I read was. On the Natural History Museum website, you can read the 1953 Natural History Museum publication by Weiner, Oakley, and a dude named LeGros Clark, which is them essentially announcing that this is a forgery. And I read that online. That's funny. Like a scan of it. I about like, these had, are disco- recent discoveries. I wish they had like the whole display. Yeah, I think it's still there. Yeah. And they pull it out sometimes and like, here's the display of the Piltdown uh-huh. Man. But they do have a little section about it that's over by the main staircase. And mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, here they are digging for it. And that's Piltdown Man, the longest running hoax in science that we know of so far. That is At super the good. Moment. Piltdown Man. I love how there was like a like a digging theme. Oh, yes. I, I was like, well, shall we continue to dig in England in random places <laughs> in the south <laughs> southwest? <sighs> Southeast, but still. Yes, Piltdown Man, well known hoax. Very definitely. Nice. Arthur Conan uh, Doyle was involved, I'm gonna believe. Where else you gonna get a fifteenth century like he would have had one from somewhere. I know. And I can only imagine these dudes who are just like 
You know what we should do? <laughs> We've just shot cocaine. <laughs> oh, man, I got to go. What if the missing links were, like, right here? <laughs> we just, like, did it ourselves. because, And then it was on the heels of a, a huge hating France and Germany. Right, that's fucking France, fucking Germany. But, like, meanwhile, they were like, civilization involved? Right, civil, right. Jesus God. is from here. The Holy Grail is here. <laughs> Definitely, we're going to find the earliest missing and link have here. Have you like read the Bible? <laughs> they are nowhere near. Nowhere near you guys. Jesus, born in Kent. That's right. Went to Glastonbury. He was at Glastonbury when Michael Jackson died. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> was at Glastonbury when Michael, Michael Jackson, Jackson died. died. Jesus Christ, Whitstable, Kent. Kent. <laughs> Ready? Okay. okay. Madness Madness is hosted by Aaron Byrne and Amanda Clay, with occasional outbursts from Brian Byrne, who is me. Brian Byrne records and edits the show. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please, if you enjoy the show, uh, rate us and leave a review. Leaving reviews helps people find the show. And the more people listen to the show, the more people you'll have to talk about the show with. I mean, just mull that over. You can also listen to us online at madnessmadnesspodcast.com. You can find links to our social media on madnessmadnesspodcast.com. You can email us your thoughts about stuff at madnessmadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>